Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 102 of the Forge of Freedom. Uh, today, I've got an interesting uh, quiz or test that I want to share with you. This is a quiz at The Trace, which is a website that uh, an organization that promotes gun control. Uh, it was, I believe, seeded or funded initially by Every Town, uh, which is an organization that was that's funded by Michael Bloomberg. But it's it published this this quiz that I think is interesting and, and instructive in some ways, but also is loaded with with some bias. And I think as as long as you understand that going into it, uh, it's not not a problem. But it sort of shows you their uh, angle with respect to these questions. Uh, but it's an interesting, I think, an instructive test, nevertheless. And I found this test through. Uh, David Yamani, who uh, I first encountered at the NRA annual meeting. He's a sociology professor at Wake Forest, and he's known for his popular website, uh, Gun Culture 2.0, which I'll link to in the show notes, of course. Uh, and he's written a few books as well. Uh, most recently, a brand new book called Gun Curious, which I will certainly link to in the show, no show notes as well. Um, but he is, and, and actually, I think the, the new book is a good way to introduce him. Uh, Gun Curious, the, the subtitle is A Liberal Professor Surprising Journey Inside America's Gun Culture. And so he identifies himself uh, in the subtitle there as a liberal professor. And I think brings an interesting perspective, one that people don't often hear to the conversation about. Uh, firearms, about self-defense, about uh, culture, about sort of this divide that we see oftentimes in the conversation about these topics. And his his perspective is interesting. I, I think I, I've heard him speak on at least two occasions, uh, and he's he's very interesting to listen to, very compelling speaker. And a few of his talks are on YouTube. I'll I'll link to those as well and encourage you to go listen to to his uh his speeches and I'll, of course check out his his book and his website he's also active on twitter which i'll link to uh but his gun culture 2.0 website is uh, also interesting because he talks about gun culture uh 2.0 in a way that you know sort of breaks free from this notion of guns as being a vestige of sort of the wild, wild west and sort of this this old culture around guns and that there's a new culture around guns and that not everybody comes to the comes to the gun debate or to firearms from the same perspective. It's not a 
a monolith uh, gun culture. It's it's a uh, very diverse in in ways that people often don't anticipate if they're not in the gun community, and often overlook even if they are in the in the gun community um, or in the uh, right to keep and bear arms community. So uh, definitely a very interesting book. I think that uh, Gun Curious would be worthwhile purchasing and, and reading. He's also got an older book that I know is very good. I haven't read Gun Curious yet because it's brand new, but he has a book from 2021, Concealed Carry Revolution, Liberalizing the Right to Bear Arms in America, which is a, an excellent book. So with that said, I want to get to this test from The Trace, uh, which like I said, The Trace is an organization that was founded, uh, I believe, in 2015, uh, if my recollection is correct. But it was started with some funding from Every Town for Gun Safety, which is an advocacy group uh, devoted to promoting gun control and reducing so-called gun violence. Uh, of course, it was funded primarily by Michael Bloomberg, uh, who is course, a very wealthy businessman from, from New York City and the former mayor of New York City. But this test, and I'll try to pull it up here on the screen, it says, test your knowledge of U.S. gun laws. How much do you know about background checks, concealed carry? Uh, take our 12-question quiz to find out. So I want to go through this quiz with each of you, partly because uh, I think it's interesting, I think it's instructive, but also, so I think you might learn something from it, but I think uh, you'll notice some of the bias uh, in each of the questions or the statements. Some of them are statements. So the first one says, number one of 12, no matter where you buy a gun or from whom, you're required to undergo a background check. And the answer to that, of course, is false. And their explanation says it depends on where you're buying the gun. If it's a dealer who has a federal license, like a gun store or a pawn shop, then yes, you have to undergo a background check. But it's different if you buy from a private seller, i.e. someone without a federal license. A private seller could be your friend or a neighbor, but the term also includes many people who sell at gun shows and some who sell guns on the Internet. In most of the country, private sellers aren't required to conduct background checks. Only 20 states have laws requiring background checks on private sales. So, of course, the implication here from an organization that generally promotes more gun control is that there should be more gun control. I.e., There should be uh, stricter gun control measures emphasizing uh, universal background checks. Of course, they don't explicitly say that here, but uh, that's the the implication. Of course, the problem, as we've alluded to on this show and in, in other podcasts, is that universal background checks will accomplish nothing to reduce crime. They will simply require people who would otherwise be lawfully able to purchase firearms to go through a more burdensome process, more expense, 
to transact in tools that are used for the defense of themselves and their loved ones um, or for other purposes, sporting events, uh, hunting, etc. Because as seems obvious, uh, criminals don't purchase firearms through normal commercial channels. They generally uh, either steal the firearm that they've used in a crime or purchase it on a black market or through other channels. And of course, if a background check were required, it seems silly to think that they would comply and submit themselves to those background checks. So, of course, universal background checks would do no good. And of course, I would point you to John Lott's research in this regard as well. Of course, he's the founder of Crime Prevention Research Center at crimeresearch.org. And as always, I'll, I'll link to that website in the show notes. But the other thing that universal background checks and the danger of universal background checks, aside from making the process of purchasing and selling firearms more burdensome for people who uh, want to purchase a firearm or sell a firearm, is that it would essentially create not only a universal background check, but universal registration. At least it's a step in that direction. And of course, the problem with registration is that it's another step toward confiscation. Uh, and Stephen Holbrook has written on this as well as other folks in the uh, individual rights and gun rights community. All right, number two. And actually, before I move on to number two, just one other thought there on the universal background check uh, issue is that while it may sound paranoid, this is not something that's just made up out of thin air. The One of the final steps toward a despotic and tyrannical government and the oppression of its people is the confiscation of firearms. And this has played out throughout history. And if it wasn't firearms, it was before firearms, it was other sorts of arms. Uh, so. And that's why oftentimes firearms are known as the palladium of liberty. They're the last defense against a tyrannical government. And we saw that, uh, you know, in Ukraine, what was the one of the first things that the government in Ukraine did after Russia invaded? They tried to equip as many of the people in Ukraine with rifles, with AR-15s, as possible so that they could prevent the invasion uh, that uh, was perpetrated by Russia. So this is not some fairy tale, some made up uh, concern. This is a, a real, a real problem. We saw this, uh, like I said, throughout, throughout history uh, where governments disarm the populace before engaging in horrific acts against the population. All right, number two, how many guns would someone have to sell in a year before they're no longer considered a private seller? And the answer is, although this may be changing, there is no set number. 
And this has been a topic of discussion with respect to uh, ATF rulemaking. And of course, that opens a whole nother can of worms about what authority the ATF has to change these sorts of things. And I think they have no authority. Uh, but they're basically the ATF's new proposed rule is attempting to to bring more people within the net of um, dealers with uh, people who would or uh, businesses or people who would be required to have an FFL, a license to sell firearms, and thereby required to conduct background checks for the sale of firearms. And they're trying to, to wrap in people who, although they may only be occasional sellers of firearms, trying to wrap them into uh, the requirement to conduct a background check. And of course, that would chill the private sale of firearms and expose otherwise law-abiding people to potential criminal penalties for completely peaceful and lawful activity. But, of course, here, the question, how many guns would someone have to sell in a year before they're no longer considered a private seller, is framing the question in a way that assumes that there's a certain level of agreement with the concept of background checks for purchases. Uh, so basically implying that there should be some limit on the private sale of firearms uh, before uh, someone is considered commercial seller and thereby required to follow the all the laws with respect to an FFL, a Federal Firearms Licensed Dealer of Firearms. Number three, let's say you undergo a background check to buy a gun. Which of the following would cause you to fail? You voluntarily spent time in a mental health facility. You have a felony record. You are on the federal terrorist watch list, and you have been arrested for domestic violence. The answer here is you have a felony record. And by pointing out these other options, it's meant to suggest that there should be other prohibited categories. And there are other prohibited categories, but that these specifically, these other three, should make somebody a prohibited person under federal law. Here it says in their explanation, for instance, people who've been arrested for domestic violence can still own guns if they were acquitted, the charges were dropped, or they pleaded guilty to a lesser crime. That may be true as long as they're not subject to a domestic violence restraining order. But of course, here they're implying that just by simply being arrested, you should lose your right to keep and bear arms, which is just absurd. 
Uh, people are arrested based, arrested based on false allegations all the time. Uh, it happens very frequently. And to be deprived of a fundamental liberty, of the right to keep and bear arms, the right to self-defense based on an arrest is absurd. So, like I said, this, this test is instructive in a number of ways. It shows you sort of the mindset of organizations like the Trace that balance the desire for safety, even though it may be only the perception of safety, these measures would do almost nothing, certainly almost nothing to reduce violence with guns, uh, but people would have a perception that they're more safe if they, there were all these measures put in place. Uh, so, like I said, there's a lot of bias in each of these questions and in the explanation that the trace gives. Number four, you must undergo a psychological evaluation as part of your background check. False. Um, so whenever a NICS check, a background check, a, a national instant check system, a background check is conducted, uh, the dealer contacts the FBI or in some, in some instances, the state agency, and they search the government database for records that would indicate that you're prohibited in some way from having a firearm. Uh, you don't have to provide character references, or like in the case of the Bruin case, you don't have to provide some proper purpose or good reason to purchase a firearm. That in the Bruin case, that was to obtain a license to carry a firearm. But likewise, you don't have to provide any sort of reference or, or reason to purchase a firearm. And you don't have to undergo, to undergo a psychological evaluation. And you shouldn't have to. Again, this is uh, suggesting additional hurdles, additional burdens on the purchase of a firearm that are unnecessary and unlikely to reduce violence with guns in any significant manner. Number five, how long do authorities have to complete your background check? And this is actually a trick question. The answer is as long as necessary. But we'll find out here what they say what they say. I suspect they want the answer to be three days. So we're going to go with three days and see what, what they say. They say that's correct, even though it's not. Okay, so how long do authorities have to complete your background check? The real answer is that after three days, 
so let me back up. You're at a, a, an FFL. You're at a dealer of firearms. You tell them you want to purchase a firearm. They call the FBI or they may go, they may have a computerized system where you submit the application through a computer. And sometimes the FBI provides a response within minutes. Other times they need more time because you may have a similar name to somebody who has prohibiting factors uh, or some other reason. If the FBI does not provide a response to the gun dealer within three days, the gun dealer may proceed with the sale, but the FBI can still continue to conduct the background check. So if at a later time the FBI completes its check and finds out that you're a prohibited person, they can follow up with the dealer and say that you've been denied. Some dealers will proceed with the sale after three days. Some will not. So the answer here is that authorities have as long as necessary to complete the background check, but the dealer may proceed with the sale after three days if the results are not returned within three days. Number six, let's assume you passed the background check. Before you can carry your new, new gun concealed in your waistband as you walk around town, you first have to pass a firearm training course. Okay. The answer to that is false. Okay. Under federal law, there is no requirement to undergo a training course before carrying a firearm. However, some states still require training to qualify for a permit of some sort to carry your firearm. Once again here, the implication seems obvious. Um, there's a bias toward requiring training to exercise a fundamental right. That is the right to keep and bear arms, which, as we all know, the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A lot of people mistake the prefatory clause the clause that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state as somehow limiting the operative clause of the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The prefatory clause simply states a reason for protecting the right. It doesn't provide an exclusive list of reasons. It's not in any way limiting the right. It's simply stating a reason for protecting the right, providing a reason for identifying the right in the Bill of Rights. But the operative clause, the main corpus, the main purpose of the uh, Second Amendment, 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, is controlling. And it says the right. So it's not, the Second Amendment doesn't give us a right. It simply identifies a pre-existing right. The right implies that it was in existence before the Bill of Rights. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And by requiring people to take a class or get a license or go through a background check, you are infringing on the right of the people to keep and bear arms. There should be no prior restraint on the right to keep and bear arms, just like there is no prior restraint on the right to free speech. If you use that right in a way that's harmful, then you could suffer the repercussions. But there is there should be no prior restraint. Number seven. In most of the country, you don't need a permit to carry a concealed gun in public. The answer to that is true. A majority of the states now have what's called sometimes called constitutional carry or permitless carry. Okay. Uh, federal law is relatively silent on this. Okay. Uh, but most states, 27 now, have constitutional carry or permitless carry, which basically just recognizes that we shouldn't have to ask Mother May I. We shouldn't have to pay the state to get back a fundamental liberty, a fundamental right. If we have to pay to exercise a right, it's no longer a right. It's a privilege, and that just flies in the face of natural law, of freedom, and the Second Amendment. Number eight. You bought a pistol. You have to register it with the federal government. False. There is no registration requirement, generally, Okay, for certain types of arms, for instance, the arms that are subject to the National Firearms Act of 1934, uh, suppressors, short barrel rifles, short barrel shotguns, uh, machine guns, and what are sometimes called any other weapons, uh, they do have to be registered, and you have to pay a tax of $200 and carry a tax stamp with that arm. But generally, if the firearm is not subject to the National Firearms Act, it does not have to be registered. A lot of people in the general public believe that when you undergo the background check, you are somehow registering the firearm. And there is some concern that the federal government would have access to those records, but there are, they are the federal government, that is, they are prohibited by law from maintaining those records in some fashion uh, such that it would be a registry or a de facto registry. So when you purchase a firearm, it is not registered. Number nine, which of these weapons is legal for you to own as a civilian? 
machine gun, a silencer to attach your, to your handgun, a grenade launcher, or all of the above? And the answer here is all of the above. While these arms are lawful to possess for most people, unless you're a prohibited person, they do have to be registered. These are examples of arms that would have to be registered according to the National Firearms Act. Before we move on to number 10, I want to say about number 8, this goes back to our discussion earlier about universal background checks and the problem with universal background checks, aside from their ineffectiveness, is that it's a step closer to universal registration. This number 8 follows in the same vein. You bought a pistol, you have to register it with the federal government. The answer is false, but of course the implication, uh, the conclusion that the trace wants you to draw is that, wow, we should have to register firearms. But of course the problem, like I said earlier, is that criminals will not comply. It violates our individual liberties. Firearms are tools that people use to, for lots of reasons, for lots of lawful purposes. And of course, registration would do almost nothing to prevent crime. But it would create an environment where a tyrannical or despotic government could confiscate arms and oppress its people, which is of course the most deadly threat in human history. Governments that have disarmed their populace have killed millions and millions of people throughout history. Number 10. How old do you have to be to own an AR-15? There is no federal minimum age, 18, 21, or 25. What do you think the answer is? Number 10. There is no federal minimum age. You do have to be a certain age to purchase a firearm. But the question here is how old do you have to be to own an AR-15? And their explanation says just that. Federal law prohibits people under 18 from buying AR-15s or any long guns at a gun shop, but it does not prohibit the ownership. Of course, this is meant to appeal to a motion that somehow there should be an age restriction on the ownership of AR-15s. But there is no, no restriction. Uh, under federal law, anyway. <clears throat> uh, it does say that several states have imposed minimum age requirements, but in much of the country, it's perfectly legal for minors to own AR-15s. And I think this actually brings up uh, an interesting topic of discussion. We focus in this, the trace, this test, uh, the notion about 
so-called gun violence, which I think is a misnomer. Guns don't commit violence. People do. It focuses on the tool rather than the person, and it deprives people of a sense of, of agency. And frankly, I think the, the concern about minors owning f- firearms, not just AR-15s, is an indictment of how we're raising our children. The children should be able to responsibly handle tools in a way that doesn't harm others. And frankly, we, we've, we've taken too much responsibility away from our minors. Uh, and they're expected to have basically zero responsibility. And unfortunately, this leads to a d- topic of a much deeper discussion about sort of the breakdown of the family and, and culture and sort of the displacement of the family by the government and just sort of detachment from responsibility generally. But children should be able to, if not handle firearms, know how to be responsible around them. Okay. And if they're not, that's not a problem with the firearm itself. That's a problem with the way that child was raised. Okay, number 11. A defect in your gun could cause it to explode in your hands or fire without the trigger being pulled. Do federal regulators have the power to force the manufacturer to issue a recall? Okay, a defect in your gun could cause it to explode in your hands or fire without the trigger being pulled. Do federal regulators have the power to force the manufacturer to issue a recall? The answer, no. So this is not directly related to um, what's called the PLCAA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, but it's related. And what the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act does is it protects manufacturers of manufacturers of arms from suit where somebody has used their product unlawfully. So if somebody goes out and uses a Colt firearm in a crime, Colt can't be sued for the misuse of that firearm. Or if they are sued, they're protected by the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which makes sense. If somebody drives a Ford truck and they're drunk and they kill somebody, it's not Ford's fault that the person was irresponsible and used their vehicle in an unlawful manner, just like it's not Colt's fault that somebody used their product 
in an unlawful manner. They can be sued, however, if their product is defective and the PLCAA does not protect manufacturers from suit related to defects or harm caused by defects in their product. So this is pointing out that federal regulators cannot force the issuance of a recall, but people can nevertheless file suit for harm caused by the defect itself. Number 12. The gun did explode in your hand, and I already gave away the answer to this. The gun did explode in your hand. Can you sue the company that manufactured it? The answer, yes. And here they say, you might have heard that the gun industry has sweeping legal, legal protections, and it does. The Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act protects gun makers from lawsuits over injuries related to the criminal or unlawful use of a firearm. Again, this, <laughs> I pointed out the, the comparison to the, to the vehicle that's driven by a drunk and, and harms somebody. It's completely absurd to believe that the manufacturer should have some liability for the unlawful use of their product. It's not the manufacturer's fault. It's the person who did the unlawful act. It's the person who drove drunk. It's the person who shot the other person unlawfully. Okay, Those are the harm, and you shouldn't create some third-party liability where there is no fault. And here, this is a tactic to embolden people to call for the removal of these sorts of protections. And it's a tactic to try to bankrupt manufacturers of firearms. Because if manufacturers of firearms are able to be sued for the unlawful use of their products, guess what? They're not going to go after the person who used it unlawfully. They're going to go after the the gun manufacturer because they have more money, okay, and thereby try to bankrupt the industry. So it, it's completely absurd. It's a, a horrible tactic to try to um, put put an industry out of business that provides millions of people every year with the tools they need to protect themselves and their loved ones. So there you go. I, uh, how many did you get right? Uh, go back and take the test yourself if you want to. Obviously, you've got the answers now. But I, I think it's an instructive test. Like I said, despite the bias that's loaded into to the questions or the statements in some of, some of the uh, tests, I think if you take the test, you'll you'll understand more about the perspective that these gun control groups take and some of the concerns that they have. And it may help you formulate responses to address the concerns that they have. So anyway, I hope you uh, learned a little something from this exercise, from this episode. Again, I'll, I'll link to this to this test in the show notes and to the other resources that I mentioned earlier as well, especially the resources from David Yamani. Uh, 
Once again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, of course, don't forget to like and subscribe. Share the, share the episode. Share it with your friends and your family. Help us spread the message of freedom. Uh, this podcast is really about helping us preserve the freedoms that we do have and to carve out new freedoms for the future. We don't want to be complacent because if we're complacent, we're going to lose our freedoms. And government will not give us more freedom. We have to earn it. We have to get it back. We have to preserve it. We have to work for it through our blood, sweat, and tears. And that starts with education. That starts with you, the individual. And it builds from you to your family, to your loved ones, to your community. And it starts from the bottom up not from the top down. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember... You are the Forge of Freedom.